Titus chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verses 4 and 5 tonight. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we live in a country that allows us to meet in a public assembly like this, to read the Bible publicly, to pray publicly, and to sing according to the dictates of our heart. We know that there are many cultures around the world that don't have that opportunity and cannot afford the luxury of frequent worship. How excited then we are and blessed we are to be able to gather together to have you teach us and to get our sights adjusted, giving to us what we need. Lord, we're also so grateful for that radio station that you've entrusted to us as stewards, and we pray that tonight as this message goes out across the city and state, that you would also touch lives through your word, that your spirit would work. We're grateful, Father, that we can be a small part of what you're doing in the world. And we pray that you continue your work through every one of us here. Lord, I also pray for individuals who might be here tonight and feel a little uncomfortable in the sense that they really don't know what you want from their lives. Lord, I know that you're big enough to reveal it to them. If we would be small enough to listen and to take whatever you tell us to do, that we'd be humble enough to say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Help us, Lord, to stir up the gift that is in us and to step out in faith, to open our mouths, open our lives, and as we share, Lord, touch and change lives around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to look at two more verses, and I've called this Seven Marks of a Godly Young Woman. In verse 4, the older women are to admonish and to teach the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now we all know that God is the Lord of the universe. We sing it in many songs. We proclaim it on a daily basis. Lord, you are God. Jesus is Lord. The Lord also wants to be the Lord of our homes, our businesses, our marriage relationships. In virtually every area of our lives, he wants to be the boss. He wants to be in charge. Knowing that, Paul shifts from the problems at Crete and the need to raise up leadership in chapter 1 and the problem with false teachers to the very practical subject of what it is to be a godly older man, a godly younger man, older woman, or a young woman. He sort of divides up the church, and he's addicted to practicality. He was highly practical. Now, he was also highly spiritual. But in Paul's mind, being spiritual always led to working out your spirituality on a practical level. He never had his head in the clouds. He wasn't in an ivory tower, isolated from life. He loved to see spiritual principles fleshed out, worked out in daily lives. And so the admonitions here in verses 4 and 5, along with what we read last week, um, spirituality leading to practicality, now for the young women. Now this is sort of a hot issue, the subject of womanhood, and uh, I wouldn't say that I'm qualified to speak on that. 
for obvious reasons. That's why I'm a Bible teacher, you see. Because we can look and examine the Scriptures and it doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. The Bible is the Bible. But this is a hot subject these days. What is a woman? What is feminine? What does it mean to be uh, truly a woman in our society? There's a lot of peer pressure. I found an article just a few years old from uh, the magazine called Today's Christian Woman written by Janice Harris, a woman, obviously. She said... It's one thing to conclude that it's important to live your life without undue concern for what other people think, but it's another thing to do it. Peer pressure is thought of as a teenage problem, but many women, even Christians, struggle with it long after adolescence. Almost every woman is self-conscious about her appearance, clothes, weight, and makeup. Some worry what others think about their housekeeping and decorating skills, while others feel pressured about going to work or about not going to work. One of the main problems with peer pressure is that it can cause a woman to act on someone else's values instead of her own. But the bigger issue is that it is a matter of pride which always threatens a person's spiritual health. Learning to resist peer pressure has many advantages, one of which is a tremendous feeling of freedom, keeping in mind that God is the only one whose approval will ultimately matter. If we could only learn to live that way, not just gals, guys and gals, that God's opinion is really the only opinion that matters. What does God think about the way I act or the way I think in this given situation is a tremendously freeing way to live. Because there's a lot of pressure. And if you're always the kind of a person that is out to please other people, you yourself will be really miserable. You'll be frustrated. Because just when you please somebody, there'll be somebody else who doesn't like the way you do it. So, not that you should become an isolationist or arrogant or elitist and say, well, shine them all on then, man. But how freeing it is to be able to say, though I love you, what matters most to me is what God thinks a whole lot more than what you think. It's a freeing way to live. Now, there is a gender war. There is the battle of the sexes. Uh, It is raging around the globe. It is really raging in this country. And there are politically correct things to do, say, and be, and politically incorrect things to do, say, and be. By the way, this is not new. This has been going on ever since the creation of the earth. And I'd like you to turn for just a moment. This is all sort of introductory and preparatory to Genesis chapter 3, when God created Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. Somebody once said that Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage setup. She couldn't tell him about all the men she could have married. And he couldn't tell her about all the, the way the things her, his mother used to do better than the way she does it. None of that was possible. They were prototypes. They were the first. But that's not really true because though their marriage was great and they loved one another and there was an attraction for one another, they were one flesh, sin entered into the picture and the consequences thereof. So we're going to turn and look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, a few verses. 
You know the story. Eve disobeyed. Adam also disobeyed. This caused the fall. Ultimately, sin entered into the world and death through sin, the Apostle Paul said. And afterwards, the Lord, verse 14, said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now some have seen in that text the word desire as referring to sexual desire or emotional desire. You'll have a real strong urge, an emotional sexual desire for your husband. I don't think that's what it means simply because she had this before the fall. So it was nothing new that she would have a desire for her husband. Moreover, if we look in context, which is always, by the way, the very first rule when you interpret a passage of Scripture, what the text around it says, this term desire is used also in the greater context in chapter 4 referring to Cain. Remember, Cain kills his brother, Abel, because of jealousy, because of wrath. And God comes to him and uses the same word in chapter 4, Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire, same word, is for you, but you should rule over it. The word desire is teshukah in Hebrew. It means to dominate It means to have a strong desire to rule or control. And then God said, Your your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's a very strong term. It's the Hebrew term mashal, and it means to have an authoritarian rule over. Not because that was God's original design, believe me. But it actually means a despotic kind of authoritarianism, which is part of the curse. Part of the curse is that the woman would have a desire to exercise or usurp authority in the relationship. And also part of the curse is that man would resist it and he would seek to be an authoritarian in the relationship. It's not God's design. It's part of the fall. It is part of the curse. So at the very beginning, you've got gender wars here. It's part of the curse. This is where feminism started. This is where male chauvinism started. It's nothing that we came up with in our brilliant of late generations. It's part of the curse that we have simply refined and made politically correct. But it's part of the curse and the fall. Matthew Henry has a great commentary on the first man, the first woman. He said, woman was not taken from man's head to be above him. Nor was she taken from man's foot to be walked on by him. Listen to that carefully, men. But she was taken from his side to be close to his heart, to be protected by him all the days of their life. God took the woman from the man's side and said, Here's your mate. You'll love her. You will be a partner with her. 
You won't be an authoritarian over her. She's not to usurp authority over you, yet part of the curse is that strong teshukah, desire to dominate, to rule, and to control. So back in Titus, we get to the application of the rule of the early church, and he gives guidelines to the church. And uh, these guidelines are to be given in two ways. The older women are to teach... And the second word is to admonish. That's a strong word for teach. Admonish, warn, uh, exhort them strongly. Which leads me to believe that, number one, these things don't come naturally that we're about to read. The fact that we need admonishment shows that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. And these things may not sit well with us both for men or for women. It also shows me that we have an incredible tendency to forget biblical truth, and we need an often reminder of it consistently. That's why Peter said, as long as I'm in this temple, I'm going to consistently remind you of these things until I die. There are certain things that we need to be reminded of. And in a marriage relationship, when a couple first gets married... That relationship is sort of like putty. It's like fresh cement. It hasn't hardened up yet. And that's why it's important to set patterns, good patterns, not bad ones, good ones early. Sort of cut the groove in the record early because whenever you put that record on, that little needle is going to skip and go into the groove that you've cut. So cut the right kind of grooves and cut them early. And I find that if couples set good patterns early, they're set pretty much for a long time, for life sometimes. If they put it off and procrastinate, chances are they'll never get around to it. Oh, don't worry. We'll pray together someday. We don't do it now while we're dating or while we're engaged because we're busy. What, do you think life's going to get easier? You're going to get unbusy all of a sudden? Think again. If you don't do it now, you'll not do it later. If you don't set good habits of encouraging one another, submitting to one another, praying together, seeking the Lord's will, it'll never happen. Now, as a boy... Um, I was somewhat awkward around girls. In fact, I was very awkward for this reason. I am the fourth boy in my family. All I could relate to growing up were guys. I never had a sister. And when it came time for me to date, it was just really awkward. I didn't understand, for the most part, how girls thought. I was unskilled in relating with them. Their mood shifts, their swings in behavior, it was an enigma to me. I didn't quite get it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. It was just, I was, it was awkward. I just felt goofy. I'm sure they thought I was goofy. And that's because, again, I didn't have any sisters. I could relate to my brothers so well. But the only role model I have had of a woman, of a girl, was my mother. She was a good role model. But relating to them other than as a mother was difficult. So when I met Lenya, my present wife, my only wife, <laughs> let me clarify that. It's not like there are others or there will be more. When I met Lenya, one of the things that was so refreshing for me is the way she thought. She thought more left brain. She thinks more logically, more linearly. 
And for me, it was just easier. It's like the way I was used to thinking or being around my dad and my brothers and my family. So uh, it was quite refreshing. But the only role model I had, a female role model, was my mother. And fortunately, she was a good role model. She was a classy lady, hardworking lady, devoted to her kids, devoted to her husband, uh, had principles that she never wavered from. And she modeled and even many of these things uh, here. She made our home a haven. As we go through these seven principles, these seven marks tonight of a, of a uh, godly young woman, there's two major reasons why these things are set out. And so gals, kind of take this to heart. There's two major reasons why you ought to be a woman that wants to seek God with all of your heart. Number one, it's healthy teaching. It's sound doctrine. Verse one, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine or healthy teaching. Okay, Titus, when you teach the people in Crete, make sure that what you teach them is healthy teaching because healthy teaching can help in building healthy relationships. Unhealthy teaching, if you're role modeled something that's unhealthy or if you're taught something unbiblical, it's not spiritually sound, it makes for crummy relationships. Which brings up a very important principle about God's governing your life. Do you think that God gives you laws to make you miserable? Do you think God sets parameters around relationships because He thinks, you know, I made these humans and I I just love to watch them suffer. So I'm going to impose stringent regulations on them so that they'll just walk around burdened all the time. You'd be surprised how many times people think that's how God thinks about them. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's parameters in life and in relationships... We're meant to make us blossom. We just look at them the wrong way, perhaps because we ourselves are guilty of breaking them or not wanting to live by them. We're stubborn. When you see a policeman, what's your first reaction? Be honest. Do you go, policeman? Or do you go, white knuckle, look at the speedometer, take your foot off. I'll be honest, that's exactly what I do. You know why that's exactly what I do? Because all my life I viewed policemen as trying to cramp my style. I should be able to go as fast as I want to go and do whatever I want to do. That's how I grew up. That's what I, I was rebellious. They exist for positive reasons, not for negative reasons. They exist to, to let everybody go to their destination safely. I viewed them negatively. But the law is given for our safety. God's laws are given for our safety. God's laws are given for your betterment. God knows best about you. Father knows best. In our home, there are laws. There are rules. We try to be firm but flexible. We let our son negotiate on certain things. Others are non-negotiable. He doesn't always like our rules. And sometimes if he's very recalcitrant and obstinate against those rules, will enforce other rules. Like, you know, you keep it up and you go to bed even a half an hour earlier than normal. And if you keep that up, you know, you go to bed a half an hour earlier than that. Your choice. There are certain rules. He has to pick up after he plays. Why? Because I want to make him whine. He doesn't like to. Why do I have to do it? Because you made the mess. Now, I do that because I want him to grow up responsible. I don't want him to be a slob when he grows up.
he can't just leave after school on his bicycle and go up the street to any one of his friend's house. He's got to tell me where he's going. He has to be back at a certain time. Why? Because I'm concerned for his safety. It's because I want to cramp his style. No, I love him. I'm concerned for his safety. He has to brush his teeth before bed. Why? Because I'm a mean dad? No, because I don't want him to have dentures when he's 25. (laughs) Or pay for the cavity bills along the way. (laughs) Which means this. The quickest way, here's a secret, the quickest way to you being happy and fulfilled is to submit to the parameters of life set by God. You want to be fulfilled? Submit to them. You want to be miserable? Here's how. Don't submit. Oppose them. Resist them. Be antagonistic against them. Think that you know better than the one who created you. And live according to those dictates. And you will be a miserable person. In relationships, circumvent God's ideal for your life. Do your own thing. Apart from the will of God, you'll be miserable. I know a lot of people who've come to me and said, it's exactly the truth. I did my own thing, went my own way in this relationship, and now I'm reaping the harvest of those choices that I've made. But God wants fulfillment for you, so we submit. Secondly, not only is this proper for sound doctrine, healthy teaching, laws, because God loves us. Uh, Secondly, our lifestyle will either complement what we say or negate what we say. We tell the world, God is a God of love. Christianity works if our lifestyle in our personal relationships, that's the biggest test. That's the biggest test. If our personal relationships don't reflect that, then they will see through the hypocrisy. That's the meaning here of verse 5 where it says, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Remember the story when David sinned with Bathsheba? He did it in secret. He didn't think anybody knew. Just he and Bathsheba knew. And then Uriah the Hittite, he had him killed. Nobody knew. But God knew. And God snitched and told Nathan the prophet. And he said, Nathan, go to David and rebuke him for his sin. And so Nathan came in one day. After many months, almost a year had passed, about nine months after David committed the secret sin. And he gave him an allegory. He said, David, I've got to tell you about a pressing need in the kingdom. There's a family, a very poor family. And they're so poor, they just have a single little lamb. And then there's this rich character who's got so many lambs, so many sheep, don't know what to do with them all. And because this rich guy was having one of his friends over, instead of taking one of his own sheep, he got the poor guy's single little ewe lamb and killed it and sacrificed it for dinner for he and his family and his friends. When David heard about that, his face got real red. He kind of gripped his knuckles, got real angry. He said, that man will die. Nathan said, good, you're the man. What do you you mean, Nathan? I'll tell you what I mean, David. God has blessed you with so much. A kingdom, children, wives. You have so much. And yet, you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You have illicitly slept with her and you've killed him. And he confronted him with the sin. David knew he was busted and he just broke down and he said, I've sinned against God. And he asked for forgiveness. Nathan said, you will be forgiven. However, 
Because you have done this, by this deed, you have caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David, you have given a great occasion, an opportunity for people all around who are not in the covenant relationship that Israel has with God, who are not children of God, all the people that are looking to see what makes Israel different than us, what makes this covenant with the God of Israel different. They're looking to look at your life and you are going to spread that blasphemy even further because of the sin that you've done publicly. And so these directives, number one, is because God loves you and wants you to have a fulfilled relationship. Number two, your personal relationship lifestyle will either authenticate or negate, complement or take away from your testimony so that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. Okay, note how Paul goes about this to Titus. He doesn't say, okay, Titus, get the women alone and tell them that they ought to be like this. No, he says primarily you ought to be telling the older women to tell the younger women these things. Most of this should come from the older women and they should model this to the younger women. Now, why is that? Well, number one, because Titus was probably a young man at this time and probably a single young man on the island of Crete. It is unwise for single young men to go into rooms and close the doors and counsel women, especially married women having problems with their marriage. You can see the problems. Here's this young man, this godly young man, and he's counseling this lady and she's all been out of shape because her husband's not spiritual and not this and not that and all the qualities her husband's not, this kid is. All the things she longs for, this young Titus has. And she could get emotionally attached and it could create temptation and problems for Titus. So, Titus, do it right. Teach the old women to an older woman. It's a relative term, no offense. The older women to teach and admonish the younger women these things. Makes sense. Also, the modeling process is the best way to train and disciple. Discipleship is best learned by watching others, not just by listening, but by watching others, by mentoring. Take an older woman who a younger woman can relate to because perhaps of the same role, the same kind of calling, and the learning is accelerated. And thirdly, the best way to get the job done is to bring others alongside to help you do it. Instead of Titus, I want you to train the old man and train the older man and the younger men and the older women and the younger women. Now, get others to help you do this. And the best way to teach those younger women is getting some of those older gals who've got some time on their hands and a wealth of experience to train the younger women. Actually, that's one of the best ways to teach is to let others help come alongside and do it. Okay, number one on the list. Love their husbands. The first mark of a godly young woman, and obviously the context is a married young woman, is that she loves her husband. Now, at the beginning of marriage, uh, most gals would just skim over this and say, done, not a problem, easy as pie. Marriage is so exciting, it's so wonderful, we're so in love, we're so infatuated, nothing could be better, and that's wonderful. But there is an adjustment period. You are different from him. He throws his socks up on top so that you don't see them. Eventually there's a pile and it smells and you're fastidious. You don't do things that way. You're a little picky about that. And eventually that's going to irk you. 
And you're going to have to work out that problem and a lot of other things too as you work through that time of adjustment. And you discover something eventually. That love is a whole lot more than a feeling. Oh yeah, we're just so in love. It's a choice. And it's often a choice in very difficult circumstances that go against how you feel. You will not always be able to maintain that threshold level of infatuated feelings for a mate. That's why people get married, divorce, get married, divorce, get married, divorce, and eventually stop altogether. Because they have not learned that love is a commitment for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health, until death, not until debt, but until death do us part. Of course, debt could mean death for some, but not in this case. Okay, Titus, tell the older women to train the younger women, probably by modeling, to love their husbands. Now, this was very important in ancient times because the way they got married in ancient times is very different than the way we get married in modern Western civilization. In modern Western civilization, we date, we fall in love, and then we marry. Did you know that in the ancient Near East it was the opposite? They got married, and then they learned to fall in love. Most of the marriages were arranged in advance. Love at the beginning was a choice. It was not a feeling. And this created some problems. It's not a flawless system, obviously. There were some problems and there were some divorces. And it was possible that perhaps there was a woman who was married to a man she wasn't attracted to for whatever reasons. Okay? Tell the older women to train the younger women to love their husbands. Now, the common word for love in the New Testament is what? Agape or agapao. I love, and it's a divine love. It is the highest kind of love possible. It is a word that is more often than not used for a Christian loving another Christian. Agapao. It's the kind of love that sent Jesus Christ to the cross despite the feelings of not wanting to go there in the garden. If there's any way this cup can pass, let it pass. But he loved the world. And he loved you. And so because of that agape love, based on a choice, not a feeling, he went to the cross. It's that agape love that forestalls the judgment of God in this present world. God has every right to judge this earth now. We're past due. It's God's love and tender mercy that withholds that. That's agape love. That's the normal word that is used. It is also the word that is used in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, agape, with a divine love based on choice, not on feelings. This word is different, however. It's not the word agape. It's the word phileo. Isn't that interesting? Some of you know the different terms for love in the Greek New Testament. I won't go through all of them. But simply put, phileo involves an emotional dimension of friendship love. An emotional dimension is involved. It is the delight in being together. And isn't it interesting that Paul would say, Timothy, women can be taught how to have this kind of love for their husbands. This feeling. You know, that sounds awkward to us. Teach women to feel good about being together with their husbands to have a friendship and a delight to be together. You think, oh, that's impossible. It's not impossible. I have found that feelings follow choices. If you put feelings as the engine, you'll be disappointed. Now, up to a certain point, they are. When I met my wife, I had a pretty good feeling about her. She was cute. She was intelligent. 
She was a godly woman. And eventually, uh, God convinced me to come to my senses and I asked her to marry me. Best thing I ever did. I had tremendous feelings and I still have tremendous feelings for her. There have been times when the feelings haven't been there. And I know the same feelings haven't been there for her toward me. But when a commitment is made, a choice to love, and you let the engine be the choice and the feelings be the caboose, feelings will follow. They will follow. And they can be strong again and they can be warm again and they can be very vibrant. This kind of love can be learned. So, number one on the list, mark of a godly young woman, love your husband. And then this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, here we are, we're Christians, we're telling people, God loves you, I love you. And the greatest thing about Christianity is love. For Jesus said, you'll know that you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. Well, if you, if you don't see it at home, that's the height of hypocrisy, right? That's the height of hypocrisy. The first place that ought to be modeled, the most, most prolific place for that to be modeled would be in the home between a husband and a wife. Howard Hendricks said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work, so don't export it. Now, that's from a preacher to his people. But listen to a, a teenager, an anonymous teenager who wrote this little note. I wish, quote, I wish my parents had known that unless marriage partners truly love one another, there is little they can teach their own children about the love of God or Christian living. Kids are very insightful. They know if you're just taking them to church so that they learn it or if they see it in your lives. So, the love that a wife is to have for her husband. Now, I found that the love of a wife can transform a marriage. I have many examples that come to mind. I'm not going to bring them up, but I have seen cold marriages come alive by one partner. And oftentimes the wife decides, I'm going to love him. I'm not going to base my actions upon his reciprocating. I am just going to carry out my role of submitting to him and of loving him. I found that that can cause a husband to blossom. Blossom. Make that man into something by that love. That's why God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Let me loosely translate that. Adam needs to blossom. He can't blossom without you, Eve. I'm going to make you come to him so that your life will be a partnership, a compliment to him, and cause his life to blossom. There's a cute story about a guy named Pete Flaherty who's the county commissioner in Pittsburgh. He was. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was walking on a job site one day with his wife. He's the county commissioner. He's the guy in the suit. He's in charge. He carries the mobile phone. He gives the orders. And there was a common worker, a laborer, who saw Pete Flaherty and his wife Nancy walking. And he took off his head and said, Nancy! The worker said, Do you remember me? I dated you in high school. And she blushed a little bit and, and gave her regards. And Afterwards, they got in the car. Pete Flaherty looked at his wife and smiled and said, Now, aren't you glad you married me? Just think, if you'd have married him, you'd be married to a construction worker. She said, No. If I would have married him, he would have been the county commissioner. I notice a lot of you men aren't clapping it that way. I don't know why that is, but maybe for obvious reasons. All the gals are, because you know what? I think it's true. 
A wife's love can cause a husband to blossom. Now, sometimes, sometimes a wife has the right husband. But most often, the husband becomes the right husband by the love of his wife that causes her to blossom. It's not one-sided, however. Don't worry. Next time we'll get to the men. (laughs) But Ruth Graham said this, My job is to love Billy, wife of Billy Graham. My job is to love Billy. It's God's job to change him. Wives, I know there's a lot of things you'd love to change about your husband, and I'd help you if I could. (laughs) But I can't. God can. There's a lot of things about me I'm sure my wife would love to change, but she prays for me. She loves me. And it's God's job to change. So number one on the list, that he, she love her husband. First mark of a godly young woman. Secondly, to love her children. And uh, the word here for loving of children is philotechnos. It actually means let her be a child lover. A child lover. One who is known as a lover of children. And it's also a word, phileo, that means that emotional friendship delight of being together with your child. Now, you all know this. But kids, as they grow up, learn a whole lot about life from those early years with mom and dad. They learn about authority figures. If you're an authoritarian but you don't show any love, they'll grow up despising authority. They're the kind of kids that get into gangs. They'll be the kind of kids that will rebel radically later on. Their view of authority, their view of God, comes largely from the way that child is treated by parents at an early age. That's a given. That's very, very common knowledge. And so it's important that we love our children and love them the way they are. Not teach them that unbiblical technique of being compared to other people, which is so detrimental to a child. You know, Billy, I wish you were more like your older brother. That kind of stuff, that kind of comparison, in his or her mind, devaluates the child. Be a philotechnos, a lover of children. And children need lots of approval. They need lots of encouragement. They get discouraged so easily. Little things, I noticed to my son, seem like so monumental, like the scheme of life has just been upset because this little thing has happened. So they need lots of special love and encouragement. There's a Gallup poll, a Gallup Youth Survey. It said, out of 1,000 teens, 42% had not received words of praise during 24-hour period while they were tested. Half had gotten no hug, No kiss, and 44% had not heard the words, I love you, in that time, that 24-hour period, while they were tested at home. I also found another study I figured you'd be interested in. Harvard sociologists developed a test. They said it's 90% accurate, and you'll be really interested in the results of this, to discover the factors that will lead to juvenile delinquency, or, in this case, the factors to prevent juvenile delinquency. To prevent it, number one, a father's firm, fair, and consistent discipline. Firm, fair, and consistent. Secondly, a mother's supervision and companionship during the day. Three, the parents demonstrated affection for each other and the children. Where that child sees mom and dad demonstrating love for one another. Makes the child feel so secure in the love of his parents. And four, the family is spending time together in activities where everyone is participating. Now, I would say also that loving your children means that you love them enough to lovingly discipline them, not to be a, a, an ogre, 
not with an iron fist, but to lovingly discipline. I I say, that takes lots of love. It takes lots of love. Because a lot of times parents will say, I don't want to spank little Susie. She'll be so upset afterwards. She won't like me afterwards. It might be so detrimental if, if, if I use any kind of physical means to discipline. I, I can't. I love her too much. That's a selfish love. Because you don't want to have to face little Susie's wrath. You don't want to have to go through the pain. You don't want to have to go through the hassle. Mom, it's not what little Susie thinks about you in those five minutes after the spanking. It's what little Susie thinks about you when she leaves the door at 18. And you have been firm, fair, and consistent in your loving discipline for her. You say, oh, I love her too much to spank her. I'm not saying you should go home tonight because you haven't spanked your kids in a while. So, you know, I learned some tonight. Turn over. No, that's not it. But the Bible does say this, Proverbs 13, 24, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Love your husband. Love your children. Number three on the list is to be discreet. The word means sensible, wise, uh, safe-minded, or sober-minded. It describes a woman who thinks and plots her life and her role as a woman. She just doesn't react. She responds. She thinks. Her outlook determines her outcome. So she spends time on her outlook. She's sensible. She's wise. She ponders her path before the eyes of the Lord. It means to be in control of physical emotional and spiritual faculties. In other words, you're not in bondage to those impulses of the flesh. You're not given over to them. You're in control of your role, basically. Your role as a wife. Now, this is what I found in speaking to a lot of married couples. It's one of the biggest problems in marriage is the problem of roles. What I'm responsible for, what you're responsible for. Role-playing. Uh, well, you know, uh, picking up the trash, well, that's your role, and this is my role. Now, that might be, but you've got to agree on those things. But what often happens when there is a breakdown in communication and love within the home is then uh, role ping-pong, uh, reminding each other of their roles, beating each other over the head with their roles instead of just saying, I'm responsible for my role as a wife or my role as a husband, not your role. That's your responsibility, and it's not my responsibility to remind you. It's my responsibility to love you, wife, as Christ loved the church. That's my responsibility. I'm to carry that out. I'm to love you regardless of how I feel or how you look, how you cook. How you act, I'm to love you and show that love and demonstrate that love consistently. It's not always easy, but I make a choice to do that. That's my responsibility. Her responsibility is to submit unto the husband, to love her husband, and to do it as the church would do it unto Christ. The problem is when the couple says, Well, I know I should be doing that, but if only she would... Then I'd. And then, of course, uh, she'll respond, Well, listen, I'd do that if you do this. Well, I'd do this if you do that. That's where the problem comes in. It's let's meet halfway. Any couple who says let's meet halfway is always a poor judge of distance. Have you noticed that? 
Because who's going to agree on what halfway is? Marriage is not a 50-50. It's not like, okay, I'll do this. No. This is my role, and I'm going to fulfill my role. Nancy Missler, Chuck Missler's wife, tells a beautiful story and has a great testimony of a woman whose marriage was falling apart. It was like at the last thread. And God showed her that she was to love her husband out of this verse and to submit to her husband. So she started putting in the refrigerator all of his favorite foods, all of his favorite refreshments, just making the house the way he liked it, thinking of all the things he loved in life, and it, it blew her mind. She, he came home after a couple of days, what is going on? She said, I've decided to love you, regardless of how you treat me. And that really convicted him. To make a long story short, uh, the keeping up of her role of uh, being sober-minded really changed his life as well. Next on the list is to be chaste, says in our text, They admonished the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet or safe-minded, sober-minded, to be chaste or pure or modest in action as well as in thought, purity of mind and heart. In the ancient days of Greece and Rome and Crete, marital fidelity was not the norm. It was abnormal. There was lots of divorce, Uh, There was lots of fooling around outside of uh, the marriage bed. And uh, Paul says, okay, as Christians, be chaste, pure in action, pure in mind. Let's resurrect that. That's a good word, chastity. And that's, that's a word you don't read about much these days, to be chaste, to be sexually pure and mentally pure. I think we resurrected. I think chastity, being chaste, would solve a whole lot of problems. It, it would uh, certainly uh, solve the issue of the safe sex debate. For someone who's chaste, it's not, it's not even an issue. You can debate it all day long. Not a problem for me. Abortion, not really an issue for me. Ch- being chaste, abstaining, saving oneself for marriage. According to ABC's Primetime Live, you know ABC's Primetime Live, um, Um, the show on television, they said sexually active teenage girls, which they were virgins again, the primetime news magazine aired a segment September 9th, 1993. And the show was dealing with the epidemic of teenage pregnancies. This is what they found. Diane Sawyer cited statistics that by the end of the ninth grade, 33% of American girls have had sexual intercourse and 70% by the end of high school. She supported this contention with interviews of several sexually active teenage girls, some of them as eighth grade, as young as eighth grade, and claiming as many as ten different partners. At the end of the segment, Sawyer reported every single one of these sexually active girls confided with us that they wish they had said no. Okay, let's bring this into the context of our chapter. He's speaking to young married women. Now, in those days, when somebody married, the husband would often take a wife because it gave him a greater social status in the community, number one. Number two, it allowed him to have legitimate children. But a wife often had a separate life from the husband. She was seen as a non-entity in Rome and in Greece. And husbands were really loose Many of them would go to the houses, or in those days, the temples of prostitution. 
a lot of the worship, the pagan worship, was uh, surrounded in, involved with sexual immorality. So, honey, I'll see you later. I'm going to go worship. That's exactly what they did. They couched sexual immorality in illicit worship. And the temptation for some of these women was, if my husband's going to do that, why should I stay pure? Why should I be chaste? So, Titus, you're in Crete. Teach these older women that they teach and admonish the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, safe-minded, and to be chaste, pure in mind and in action. And we have to think about that mind and in action, heart and in action. You may never be the kind who would go out and cheat on anybody. Not going to cheat on your husband. But what about the fantasies that are running through your mind? What about those books, movies, soap operas that you entertain and get a vicarious enjoyment out of because you yourself would never do that because of the consequences? Chaste involves that. Number five, and I would say the most controversial on our list, is that they are homemakers. I say that's controversial in these days. That's a very politically incorrect term these days. But uh, the idea here is not keep her at home. It's her prison. Lock her up in the four walls of her house. The idea is that the woman would guide and manage the home. She's the manager or the guide of her house, her children. Men, you've got to realize that your wives are under constant barrage of attack and by radio, by television, by magazines, that really reduce this role and would, would see this role as medieval, archaic, ancient, not to be heeded. And so you need to support them. You need to thank them for their role as your wife, as maker of the home, as lover of the children, for being discreet, for being chaste. Encourage them. Affirm them. Let them know that you stand by them. Because they are being attacked, the family is definitely at war. Now, Proverbs 31 speaks about the virtuous woman. And we read that Sunday. And, you know, the very idea in the 1990s of, a vir- of that kind of virtuous woman, again, is seen as something that isn't even to be entertained at all. It's so outmoded. I found a couple of things you'd be interested in. One is called The Death of the Family. It's a shocker. It was a book written by a British physician, The Death of the Family. That's what he said. The best human thing society could do is to abolish the family altogether. He claims that the family is the primary conditioning device for a Western imperialistic worldview. So he says, this brilliant Ph.D., get rid of the family. Then uh, Kate Millett wrote a book called Sexual Politics. One of the things she wrote was this. The family unit must go because it is the family that has oppressed and enslaved women. Now, these are sort of the trends in what I would see as the pseudo-intellectual new value system that is being pushed in our world. The family is outdated or it must be redefined. Anything traditional is the enemy. Traditional family values are seen as the great white, uh, right-wing enemy of America. And so let's redefine what a family is. And I see two trends that are happening in our family that make this very, very important of being a homemaker. Number one is there is an emphasis on the family these days. Two trends. There's an emphasis, first of all. 
There's more books written about family, more TV shows, more movies with the theme of the family than ever before. USA Today, a poll, said that uh, it outstrips uh, the authors who write about the New Age, which used to be number one on the list in spirituality. Uh, Any novels, the family is the grand theme for the late 90s. However, while the trend of the family as important as being emphasized, the real family, the real family is disintegrating. It's a popular subject. All the while, books and magazines and movies are written about it. The family is disintegrating because all those books and magazines and movies leave out the key ingredient to a healthy relationship in a family, and that's God. He invented it. So you can write books and have movies and emphasize it all you want, but the family in America is breaking down. And husbands are divorcing and leaving their wives and moms are drowning their kids. The family unit is breaking down. So it's, it's time that we stand up and say the biblical roles are not only okay, they're very valuable. And some of you moms who are at home, some of you moms who are listening by radio tonight, because you have to be home, we salute you. We salute you. Your role is so important to the stability of your children and the future of this country. It's not something to be minimized at all. I think the time has come for men and the rest of us to stand up and say we applaud the housewife. Six on the list. It's a great, good word. They should be good. Discreet, chaste, homemakers, good. The word is agathos, means simply kind. In other words, moms, rule your home, not like Brunhilde. <laughs> Johnny, you will come here, or I will shoot you. It's a kind-hearted. A Paul the Apostle said, when I was among youth in Thessalonica, I was affectionately drawn to you like a mother with her children. That agathos, that kind goodness that should be prevalent in the home. And again, Proverbs 31, 26 says, Concerning this virtuous woman, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. And then lastly, seventhly, obedient to husbands. You know, I found something interesting. Uh, One of the first verses that many men memorize (laughs) is out of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. In all things, as unto the Lord. I know men that memorize it in every translation known to man, including the original Greek languages. I mean, they have it all set out. They may not know anything else of the Bible, but they know that verse. Now, what does that mean? Wives submit out of Ephesians 5, and in this case, to be obedient to their husbands, because uh, those are fighting words for a lot of women. In fact, in in modern weddings, a lot of times, uh, women will say, I don't want you to add that obey part, okay? That's outdated. They did that with my mom tried that. It didn't work. Leave that out. (laughs) And, And I think that's because we have a warped view of biblical submission, a very warped view. If you were to look it up in the dictionary, you get several definitions, but the 
most common definition is a very negative definition. It almost would be translated, you know, eat somebody's dust, you know, bow before them, be subservient to them. Submission in marriage is really designed to be a response to the love that the husband has for the wife as Christ loves the church. How much does Jesus love you? Sacrificially, unconditionally. Now, do you have a real tough time submitting to his love? It's a natural response for a Christian who loves his Savior is to submit. It's the natural result of a wife secure in the love of her husband to submit to her husband. It's a delight to a wife to submit to a kind of a husband who loves her as Christ would love the church. Now, I'll tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean that the husband is to be the dictator. There's an awful lot of frustrated would-be army sergeants in marriages, sort of like Ralph Cramden of the Honeymooners. Remember Ralph Cramden? He'd come home, Alice, I'll send you to the moon. And he was always, you know, yelling at her, and he was a dictator. It's not what this means for a wife to submit, or in this case, a wife to obey. It does not mean that the husband is superior. Not at all. You don't have a right to bark out orders at your wife. Sit, fetch. (laughs) Maybe dinner. Do this, do that. It's not the intention here. It does not mean that the husband is the exclusive decision-maker in the family. Any smart husband will include the wisdom of his wife in making any decision. Now, if you're the kind of narrow-minded husband that said, oh, she's not capable of making good decisions, just remember whom she decided to marry. (laughs) Before you go too far with that logic... God has given her to you to complete and complement your life. It is a partnership. But I'm the head. But she might be the neck, turning the head. (laughs) Both. Both should be able to talk out and come to a mutual agreement. Now, It doesn't mean that when he makes a decision, let's say there's a disagreement and she says, okay, honey, you decide. When he makes a choice as the head of the house, it does not mean that he's right, but he's responsible. He's responsible before God for that decision. You are not. You're off the hook. Your responsibility is to submit and to obey in that atmosphere of love But the decision and the responsibility for that decision is upon his shoulders. He is bearing the responsibility. Your responsibility is to say, you know, you may be wrong, you may be right, but I support you in this decision. Then the responsibility is over with on your part. And it is upon his shoulders. So he has to answer to God. So take your hands off the steering wheel. Four hands on the steering wheel usually ends up in a wreck. Somebody's got to sit in that driver's seat. He may not be right, but he's always responsible. A husband and wife in a relationship, husband as the head of the relationship, does not mean, again, that he is superior. It means that he is following God's design for marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. 
And the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, we know that Jesus is God, that in the beginning he was equal with God, but he voluntarily emptied himself and became a man and obeyed the Father. Now, would any of us say in this room that Jesus is inferior? That'd be blasphemy. Just like it would be wrong to say a woman is inferior to a man because she is to submit to him. It is God's order of responsibility within the family. And the idea here of obedience, according to Donald Gray Barnhouse, means to become an assistant, to submit as a foundation or as an assistant. Again, the wife was there to complete and to complement what is lacking in a man. God said, it's not good that he be alone. I'm going to make him a helper. And we need all the help we can get as men before God. And I've seen so many wives compliment and beautify the lives of their husbands by their love and by their presence. So question as we end. Wives, are you making it easier or harder for your husband to lead? That's what the idea of obeying your husband, submitting to him is all about. Is it easier for him because of you or harder for him to lead? You might say, well, he's just so docile, he never leads. Is it because he never leads or because you don't let him? Relax the grip. Your desire shall be to rule over him. Your desire shall be for him, but he shall rule over you. Don't let the battle of the sexes mark your relationship. Husbands, submit first of all to God. Then love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husband and wife are to submit one to another. These are the marks, the seven marks of a young godly woman. And next time we're together, we'll talk about the marks of a godly young man. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would beautify our church and our fellowship, not by an outward adornment of new buildings and parking lots and trees, but by godly people who are beautiful with the characteristic of Jesus Christ, living and shining through their lives. Lord, we want the character of Christ to be in us. And Lord, we know that it's seen, first of all, at home. That's where love ought to be shared and shown. Lord, all of us tonight have areas where we need to get right with you and perhaps repent of some things. We pray, Lord, that we'd humble ourselves, be small enough to do that, and let you be God and Lord, not only Lord over the world, but God and Lord over our family and our relationship as men and women. In Jesus' name, amen.